0: Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. This week, I'm honored to interview veteran editor Steve Rotter, who was nominated for a BAFTA for sound editing on Dog Day Afternoon, a film edited by his mentor, D.D. Allen, He won an Emmy and an Ace Eddie for editing the TV series Holocaust, and was nominated for an Ace Eddie and won an Oscar for his editing on The Right Stuff. In addition to these award-winning films, he's edited The Missouri Breaks, The World According to Garp, What Women Want, Enchanted, The Parent Trap, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. That's just some of a filmography that includes more than 45 films, TV shows, and documentaries. Before we get into our interview, I'd like to thank Dylan Giovanetto for editing this week's podcast. And now my conversation with Steve Rotter. One of the things that I noticed about your background is that you worked for Dee Dee Allen as an assistant. That was a fantastic way to start your career, I'm sure.
1: It may have been the most exciting day I've ever had in film was the day that she hired me. And what happened was that I was working around the corner from her on documentary with an editor named Zina Voynow, who was a friend of Deedee's and a legendary New York documentary editor. And I guess Zena must have talked me up to Deedee because when the job was over and I was cleaning up, I went out to lunch, and when I came back, there was a note on my synchronizer, please come see her. So I went to see her and she said, you know, uh, we have a job opening and uh, it would be as Jerry Greenberg's assistant under her. And would I be interested? And so I just... Couldn't believe it. It was like the greatest thing. That, it probably was the best day I ever had film. And she had that
0: reputation at that point already.
1: Yes, she had already done Bonnie and Clyde and quite frankly, probably was considered by many the best there was.
0: And we became
1: not only colleagues, but very good friends. And she pretty much taught me everything I know and also what not to do.
0: <laughs> and what what is there not to do as a film editor?
1: Well, sometimes you don't want to you don't want to present the uh, director with uh, too many choices, otherwise they can't make up their mind. So she would always say, "Well, if you don't like this, look at this, and if you don't like that, look at that." So I sort of skinned it down a little bit. She was devoted to taking care of her director. She would make them food. Her whole being was devoted to that particular director, whenever whoever it was that she was working with. I did not quite go that far. <laughs> <laughs> you're not uh, you're not cooking for people. I'm not cooking for anybody. But but she was extremely talented and would uh, you know at the time it was not only myself but Richie Marks was working for her. He was above me. Uh, he was her direct assistant. And um, later on, when he left, I then graduated to become her main assistant. And you know she also pushed me out. You know, gave me jobs with her as second editor, and then eventually I was able to get my own
0: jobs, a few of them with her
1: recommendations. So it was just like, it was a miracle.
0: And I also noticed that you worked as her uh, sound editor for at least one job, right? I did. I worked as a uh, looping editor for her on a few films,
1: and then she was working on uh, C. LeMet's Dog Day Afternoon, and my wife was about to give birth. So after my wife gave birth, she asked me if I would come on and do uh ADR for that particular movie. And so needing the money and having a newborn, I took that job. It was fun. And I remember that my assistant called up my wife begging her not to have me take the three o'clock feeding because I was getting too mean in the cutting room.
0: (laughs) Having been an editor with the birth of both of my children, uh, I can relate. (laughs) you know she was my champion all the way through that's a great thing
1: yeah and it was it was just a uh, you know we lost someone special when she died quite a number of years ago now when her mother would come to town that was the only person that could tell her to come home otherwise she would hang out in the cutting room working like crazy until at least 10 at night but her mother was in town she'd leave early but still it was the it was just an incredible uh gift
0: Absolutely. And, and working with Richie Marks, another guy that we lost too soon, too. I know. And he actually was,
1: was my very best friend in the business. Mm. You know, we had the same sort of work ethic and we had the same opinion about things. And, uh, you know, I miss him dearly and think about him almost every day
0: we talked earlier about seeing a couple of your movies there are obviously ones that you would think of when thinking of you but also some others that i had not really considered uh i mean obviously great movies but they're ones that you wanted to talk about or wanted me to at least watch let's start out with dirty rotten scoundrels i thought that was a really interesting choice and when i watched that again i could definitely see why uh, that was one of the choices
1: well First of all, it's it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Second of all, it's I did three movies with Steve Martin, and he is an absolute brilliant actor. He moves well. He he uh, performs perfectly all the time. He makes it really easy to um, work on his movies. The interesting thing about that movie was that Frank Oz and Steve, the writer strike. There was a writer strike taking place, and they had no ending to the movie. So between the two of them, or maybe there was another person involved, they concocted the ending to the movie and it worked unbelievably well. And of course, there, some of the funniest scenes that I've ever seen are in that movie. There's a whipping scene and there's a, uh, a the scene at the dining room table and it's just a phenomenally funny movie. We also finished it really quickly and shot it in the south of France, kind of an additional uh, plus to the movie. But it just went together like a charm. And, you know, Chris Rock once said to me, there are two kinds of uh, directors. One is of comedians. One's are jockeys that ride the comic to a performance and the others actually write and are funny themselves. And Frank Oz was a, had a good deal of both of those. So it's no wonder that the movie was, was as funny as it is. I just remember that when we had test screenings, it was just so much fun to be in the audience because they were laughing so hard. And of course, there's nothing worse than being in a test screening when they don't laugh. And so test screenings are like final exams that can ruin your your life.
0: <laughs> no. And that you can't fake. Right, you
1: can't. So Richie Marks once said to me, when he was at a screening and people were walking out, he turned to his sound editor and he said, I feel like I'm attending my own
0: funeral. <laughs> you didn't start out editing comedy and comedy is not easy. How did that transition go when you went from more dramatic films to comedy? Is editing just editing or is there a difference? I actually don't think there's a big difference.
1: I once had an interview with the director who said to me, he was a little, I'm a little worried about the comedy. He said, well, how do you know when something is funny? And my answer was, it's either funny or it's not. And I neither said I didn't get the job, but I kind of believe that. You know, with something like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, it's just, you you couldn't help but be funny with that movie. You know, there are all these theories like, do you pause for laughs? Do you extend this? Do you make a reaction shot longer? And I feel like you just sort of have to have the rhythm of the scene. You have to stick with them what other rhythms the actors give you. Dramatic film is somewhat the same. I mean, literally with most movies, it's the performance that's the most important thing. And so the more you dig and the more you get as best performance out of that particular role, the better off you are. And so I think your goal is at the end of whatever movie, it be a comedy or, or a drama, is to really believe that it's the best film that it could be with the material that was given. When you've done that and you can actually think that way, then, you know, it's extremely satisfying.
0: Uh, One of the things that I was noticing as I I was watching the film, that it's caught like a lot of the classic comedies that are using, like, medium two shots instead of cutting back and forth a lot. It wasn't a lot of close-ups. It was playing it out wider where you could see the interaction. It was Michael Caine, right? Michael Caine and Steve Martin. So you could see them both together in the frame at the same time.
1: Well, in that, in that particular case, I believe that that was the de- directorial decision. And I'm not sure that there were close-ups of those particular scenes that played in two shots. You know, seeing them two together was priceless. You know, there's a scene by the pool where they're sort of strutting around that's, you know, extremely funny. And I believe there are a few singles, but, but not that many. And so a lot of these editorial choices, so to speak, really rely on what the director intended and what he gave. So it's not to diminish the contribution of the editor. It's just to say that you use what you have.
0: Yeah, a scene that's like that it was a scene where uh, Steve Martin's character is in jail. And the whole thing plays, I think, but like in a one almost. I believe there's some
1: coverage the bars back and forth and then the, uh, policeman standing on the left. But once again, you know, how can you go wrong staying on Steve Martin for that scene? I mean, it's absolutely hysterical, you know, and Michael Caine played it straight. And he's a very nice man. And he always used to say to me, how am I doing? I, I just was stunned that he would ask that question. And the two of them together were just beyond belief.
0: I don't know whether people think about this who aren't editors, but there's a great montage that you did in that movie to putting on the Ritz. What was that scripted as? And while I was watching the film. Uh, I happened to be on Twitter, and I saw that somebody that I just happened to like be on Twitter with was the writer of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I sent him a message, and I said, "Could you send me the script?" And he sent me the script for those couple of pages. And there's very little direction.
1: No, there's none about it in the script. It's all, uh, it's all the director, and of course the music that was chosen to do it. So. Uh, they probably, I'm i am not sure because I don't remember it that clearly, but they probably uh, played that music back on the set because if you see their movements, it's really choreographed to... Uh, and, and the writer was Lee lawner, lawner He was uh, a really sweet guy, and he would bring extras to the set that he found <laughs> on the beach, joking <laughs> about that, but uh, uh, we had a good time.
0: Do you remember on that film, I thought it was wonderful that there were places where You don't need to see the plot play out. For example, Steve Martin gets on the plane with uh, this woman that's being conned. She says, oh, you know, uh, I'm glad we're on the same side, kind of, and we're helping out in the resistance. And you don't even see the rest of that relationship play out. And the next thing you know, he's right. He's flying away from France. He's going back to the U.S. And it just cuts. It's like the audience knows what happened.
1: Exactly. Well, there's a funny story to that also, because... Steve Martin was a little afraid of her. She was so wacky. It got him, like, I think on edge. When I said to the director, you know, we have to uh, loop something in that scene, he wouldn't do it. he sent me. He wouldn't go. Didn't want to see her again. The
0: director didn't. Right.
1: Did not have anything to do with her, <laughs> her again. It kind of jumps you forward in a way. There is no, there would be no resolution to that scene anyway. It just You just jump out of it. And so I think there are a few instances of that.
0: Absolutely. But that's the interesting thing is that you don't have to tell the audience, you have to explain, oh, he figures it out. He comes up with a plan. He executes the plan. He comes back. You don't need any of that stuff.
1: Right. Particularly if the performance is as it was then, just outrageous, just sort of like was completely on the edge. Then, then of course, there's no need to explain anything because you understand from the characters, what happened. That was a very difficult scene to put together because she, um, at some point, Steve Martin whacked something with either a newspaper or or a magazine, and she said, oh, do that again. It helps my character or motivates me. And he just got weirded out. I mean, it was like, (laughs) what do you do? How do you do that? So anyway, that was the story there. I just remember it vividly because... um, it probably was the hardest scene in the movie to put together.
0: And what do you attribute that to? The fact that she was wacky or that uh, the, there wasn't a lot of space? or I don't
1: know. It definitely has to do with uh, she was all over the place trying different things, and some worked, some didn't, you know, and you didn't, you had to like pick and choose between the two. My memory is a little hazy. I just remember it being extremely different.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the right stuff. It's a lot of montage with the X1. Was that all shot or was that actual uh, archival footage of the X-1? Do you remember?
1: That was, you know, a little bit of archival footage, but mostly special effects and throwing things out the window and, you know, being in the cockpit with him and having texture behind him that suggested... They had a, a, a experimental filmmaker named Jordan Belson who did all these liquid crystal things and they put them behind their head when they were like, you know, in space or whatever. So when they fly to the X-1, you see that, These crystals are suggesting that he's in another dimension almost. They shot special effects almost every day of the movie. And I remember, since I did that particular scene, scouring months of special effects for that particular scene of things that had been discarded that I wanted to go through and see if I could use pieces, which I did. When I came on the movie, the scenes consisted of being inside the cockpit and then outside for like what seemed like less than a second. So go... And so it was really choppy. And so I thought that if I would take two or three of these actual passes of the airplane, which were special effects or, you know, CO2 cartridges up this little model, that was, whatever it was, and put them together with one pass sound effect, it would sound and be better. And that's what exactly happened. So, you know, if you watch that particular scene, whenever you cut outside, there are at least three or four shots of the airplane going in one direction, it balanced it a little bit better. And the director was sensational, Uh, Philip Kaufman. I don't know how he thought up these things or how he did it, but you dealt with performance, texture, colors. I mean, things that you never deal with in other movies existed in that movie. You know, never again did I have the opportunity to work on something that had so many elements to it. Of course, in, in many ways, it was definitely the highlight of my career, But, you know, besides myself, there are a bunch of other editors on it who were really also quite accomplished and, you know, pitched in as as well as I did. So it was a a once-in-a-lifetime project.
0: That X-1 sequence, what, what struck me by it is that you have to show the speed of the aircraft, that it's going at the supersonic speed. But as you point out, because it's going so fast, it goes past the camera in frames. I mean, there's, it's so fast. And unless you were to fake it, like nowadays, they'd probably, you know, do a 3D shot where you're tracking with the exactly. the thing. But at the time, right, you're showing the thing, it would just go. Whoosh.
1: Exactly. And that's why two or three or sometimes four of those shots that went through the frame in less than a second were put together to at least give you enough frame of reference to, to not, to not blink and lose it. Could actually see it and hear it. Yeah, it was done. It was seat of the pants special effects. You know, there were no computer, uh, no computer animation, no computerized things. I think they did try some kind of computer com- computer effects, but the plane had no shake to it, and it just was like a dart, like a needle. So it didn't seem real. And then, of course, combined with the background and the sky, you know, turning different colors due to this. A liquid crystal photography. It truly was amazing. That maybe was the sequence that sort of like if you were, if an editor was to hang his hat on one sequence, that would be mine. Here's, you have the people on the ground that are watching when he breaks his combo. I mean, it, it was quite a quite a wonderful piece of directing. In some ways, the editing part was lucky. You have this idea and it worked, <laughs> but for the same money, it might not have
0: worked. Mm-hmm. No, the editing definitely makes that sequence, and it is—it's fascinating to hear you say that you needed to use multiple shots with the same kind of audio to make to bridge it, because one shot is not enough. Right.
1: Exactly. And if you change the audio for every one of those little shots, it would make it like chop—you know—chop meat. With with film, there's not too much deviation from the script ever, because there doesn't have to be. Most things in that movie aside from combinations that you had know it like you know, the Sally Rand fan dance when you didn't know when you were going to go from the airplane to Sally Rand back and forth. That's something that you can't script, that you have to sort of go by instinct. But the concept is there. All of those flights, you know, Glenn's flight where you have both stock footage and regular and stage footage, the concept is there. It's just there's a free certain freedom that you have to use to put it together because there's no way that you can tell how it goes, unless you actually do it.
0: One of the things that I loved about the right stuff was, uh, a sense of dynamics similar to music where, you know, having loud parts and soft parts and fast parts and slow parts is important in a, in a movement of a piece of music. That's, that's something that I felt in this movie. Can you talk about crafting, um, peaks and valleys?
1: Yeah. Well, in, in that particular movie, uh, the, the actual flights and the action things because of the feeling that you wanted to get while you were in space couldn't be loud enough. And then all of a sudden it would shut down when you got to like the ethereal part and there'd be nothing. And then when the reentry would come, so it was by design um, not clear in the beginning, but once again, Bill had his had real specific sound ideas. And, uh, Jay Bucklehide, the supervisor sound editor, pretty much adhered to, uh, and, and did a beautiful job in sort of crafting those, those sequences. But if you watch the film, it's really like about the scenes themselves. And so what scene demands a louder, uh, perspective and what, what is, what is more intimate. And so, um, you know, there's a, a really great use of music in that movie, particularly when the astronauts walk out. Oh, yeah. A very heroic moment. Right. A very heroic piece of music that uh, uh, Bill Conti did that uh, was was stirring. Almost, almost patriotic.
0: How much uh, back in the day, because uh, I came in more video than film before nonlinear, how much Temp music was there back around, you know, the right stuff? As
1: much as you could put in. We had a temp music editor who would do all the, um, you know, you'd do a scene and she had the music and then we do these little temp mixes on cams that uh, the assistants would do. And sometimes, you know, we'd have a screening coming up and the cams would be going 24 hours and I would be told, you know, come at two in the morning and we'll do this scene. Oh, geez. And, and you know, the, and then uh, I can't remember her name, Susan something or other, but she came up with songs like, with Dennis Quaid there was a song, There's a Rocket in My Pocket, which I
0: thought was brilliant. <laughs> That's great. And somebody is sitting there, right, with a record player and transferring stuff to MagTrack, right?
1: Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> well, if You know, I think there there were uh, CDs in those days, but yeah. And then, um, you know, you do the effects and sometimes some of the assistants would do them. And so you'd go on the cam, and you have like five tracks and sometimes you couldn't mix them all. You have to pre-mix them. And of course, I would just be sitting there watching at two in the morning. But, uh, and then of course, uh, when we came to the final mix, it was Mark Berger, who was absolute sound uh, guru and, and genius. It was an amazingly long mix. And I remember like, now I'm not sure about this, but it seemed to me to take months. And then when we were finished, you know, no one really had seen the film in its entirety in quite a while. And we took it to a theater in San Francisco and ran it. And it was like a miracle. It all worked. I mean, really nervous. Boy, we haven't seen it in a while. But Phil liked to limit his exposure to the film in, in its entirety so he could have a fresh eye when he ran it. And so um, his theory worked. It was like, oh, my God, this is you know an oh, my God moment. Wow. Now, of course, with digital editing, you can add the music and the effects all at the same time, which is to push a button. Then it was like you got to build the track and hump the stuff over. and So it was a lot more complicated. But I think the outcome was sometimes even better because I think that the... Electronic editing seems to lend itself to quicker cuts in many instances. And so sometimes you're left a little baffled or wanting more, but not necessarily so. I mean, there's some really great films edited electronically. So I and I of course at the end of my career used electronic editing.
0: Uh, nowadays when you work with multiple editors, you're on an avid and you're on a Nexus or a Unity or something and you can all see each other's stuff. How much of it how much were you able to share each other's work back then as multiple editors?
1: Well, whenever the, whenever anyone would finish, you know, or redo us, we'd all get together and screen it, and everybody would offer an opinion. And so um, uh, that's how it would work. And we, and we would... There seemed to be a bit of a rivalry there where some people's opinion weren't appreciated as much. In those days, I was a little bit... Um, uh, more competitive than I ended up at the end of my career. So I took umbrage at some of those comments, but some of them were actually uh, worth it. But yeah, it wasn't a happy time.
0: That's pretty funny. So a little little competition going on during screenings. I'm assuming that was in a, like a dailies theater or something, you weren't watching over somebody's shoulder on a cam.
1: No, no, it was, they had their own, they built their own little theater, and that wasn't so little. And uh, in a factory building in San Francisco, and uh, it was like uh it was like a family there was a shower there and they had pilates not pilates what did they call it then uh um, like or something aerobics instructor would come everybody would stop for aerobics i mean it was really it was really like a uh, japanese factory
0: <laughs> how long did that go on do you remember what the schedule was like for that from dailies to delivery
1: I, I think it had to be at least 18 months, but I'm not, you know, I only know the part. That you were there for. Yeah, that I was there for.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I was thinking about the, with the space flights that you don't want to repeat the moments and you wanted to save certain big moments probably for a specific time in the space flight. You don't want to show, you know, what I, I'm trying to think what it you would You have be. to build
1: to a natural sort of high point. So if you, If you make too much of the beginning, then you've got nowhere to go. Exactly. But once again, you know, that film got a lot of acclaim, but the director didn't get that much. And so I think it was always a huge mistake that Phil wasn't recognized for his contribution to a larger extent than people know. I mean, he was the architect, he was the builder, he did everything. And don't forget, there are many films that won Oscars after that based on the same subject, and and they keep doing it. You know, now there's going to be a television series on the right stuff.
0: I know, I saw that. Yeah, so it's like
1: the original is still the best as far as I'm concerned, but then I'm prejudiced.
0: Hey, I wanted to get back. You mentioned the dance scenes, and there was an interesting thing in that intercutting with the dance number where the parachute deploys and there's no sound. When... Right,
1: that would be a... Um, that wasn't an editorial choice. That would be an artistic choice by the director and the sound editor. I don't specifically remember. It's like a wind, I think. It was sort of planned during the editing, but it certainly wasn't due to me.
0: I noticed that there were the use of some pre-laps. What do you use those for? What is the value of doing a prelap on an edit?
1: Yeah, I'm not exactly a proponent of that. However... Uh, what it does is it thrusts you into the next scene, particularly when the transition is not the greatest. It worked, and so the best thing I think you can say about a prelap is that it works. Okay,
0: but you're not a, you're not a big proponent. I think it's interesting. I interviewed Walter Murch, and he goes, ah, "I think prelaps are kind of like blowing smoke over a transition."
1: Yeah, see, so you know, well, that's, I'm making the same point. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite as articulate as Walter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who is? Who is? uh, one of the first movies I think I ever saw that you cut was World According to Garp, which I just love. Mm-hmm. That has some animation in it. Do you remember whether you had to like do some storyboards there? How did you deal with the the animated sections of Garp?
1: Actually, uh, John Canemaker was the animator who, uh, I think taught at Columbia and it was scripted that way. And he delivered, I don't remember any kind of, uh, um, you know, pre-visits of, of, of the animation. I just remember him delivering it. Wow. And, um, and it was fantastic. Since I have obtained or given lectures where they showed that movie, and for some reason, the animation was cut out. What? Yeah, I, I think that uh, proprietary police have gotten to it in some venues. But it was amazing, that animation, and funny. Yeah, The opening of that movie is sensational. It's one of the best opening scenes I've ever dealt with and one of the best I've ever seen. And Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy are just phenomenal. I just remember that the concept of the baby floating through the air. And so they shot all this footage in a studio with the crane going back and forth, you know, over a blue screen. And I said to George Hill, it's great, you know, and they'll just deliver us the sequence. How fantastic is that? He said, no, no, you're going to... <laughs> and so I remember just you know you know they took picture of the baby, and in this in the f- screen you know would come a toy would come floating in, and the baby would go, but somehow it had it all be matted out so it was it was some i was it was my first uh movie, and I was a little bit fearful of that particular uh my reaction was what to myself i'm gonna I don't even know how to do that but somehow... <laughs> somehow it worked and and it's brilliant you know they uh, green first did
0: a brilliant job we'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with steve rotter today's episode of the art of the cut podcast is brought to you by filmtools.com since 1996 FilmTools has been hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post no matter your filmmaking needs FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a G-Tech hard drive or an Aries Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now, back to my interview with Steve Rotter. Uh, Did you read the book? It's based on a book? I did read the
1: book. Uh, I sort of feel like, if I'm going to do the movie, read the book. In in this case, I think I understood the movie much better than I understood the book. (laughs) It came to me, and reading it was like, it didn't have... I mean, people would get angry at this, but it just didn't have the same... Impact on me as a person as the movie did, and of course the cast of that movie was was phenomenal. Since it was my first movie, I was semi terrified the entire time. I managed to hold it together, but it. it um, there were nights when I would just lie in bed in a cold sweat, and my wife would like be asleep next to me, and then suddenly she'd realize that I was like in discomfort, and she'd say, "What's the matter?" And I would say, "Oh, nothing." But yeah, <laughs> and sometimes, you know, sometimes I would go, I would be stuck on a scene and particularly this, as I got more experience. And so I would just go home, you know, if it was eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, I'd be totally stuck. I wouldn't know what to do. I'd go home and suddenly in the middle of the night, it would come to me. And so I was never one to like think intellectually about why you did this or what you did to that or Whatever, but somehow instinctively I knew what to do after you know suddenly in the middle of the night reaching a solution. So I couldn't wait to rush back in and do it. And and as you know, as as anything, as you keep doing these things, you get better and better. So you know, and the same thing is true for your you and your talent. You know, you just after a little while know what to do.
0: I love that advice, though that. You don't you shouldn't get caught up if you if you don't have a solution for a scene leave it
1: yeah don't force it boy it's the worst thing I remember when I first started editing and I was editing uh, as a second editor for Jerry Greenberg on something and it was tape splices and so every cut I would agonize over and you know then you'd run it through a movie or a projector and it would go... So when I ran my scenes, I was embarrassed because it was like a BB gun. (laughs) You know, finally, finally, I got you know I got accomplished enough so not to have to do that. And of course, when digital editing came in, you didn't hear a thing; it was quiet. It was fabulous.
0: How was that transition for you? And when was it? Do you remember what film it was that you switched to? I'm assuming Avid, or did you switch to Light uh, Lightworks uh, first?
1: Switched to Avid, and it was on uh, "Father of the Bride Part 2. And I had a genius Avid assistant named Jimmy Durante, if you can believe that. <laughs> and and I kept him f- for the rest of my career. Um, you know, he could do anything—special effects, whatever you asked him to do—and he he nursed me through the whole thing. I would keep calling Jimmy, Jimmy, and he come. <laughs> If I do now? which button do I? So, after about, I would say, a couple of months, I was pretty uh, conversant with the Avid, and I can I sort of referred to myself as a film terrorist. I could I could fly, but I couldn't take off and land. <laughs> so I needed my assistant to take off and land.
0: Uh, there is pl- plenty of film editors in Hollywood that uh, I would say that that applies to.
1: Actually, but I wish I knew all. I knew how to do it all. You know, I always regretted. Of course, it was too late for me in those days, but I always regretted not having I'd been a, a digital assistant, so I could have, you know, known what what to do. However, digital editing is taking away a big part of training of assistant editors, and um, you know, I always used to say to my assistants on in digital, you know please, whatever you do, you take a scene, put it together, and let me see it. It doesn't matter what I've done. When you. It doesn't matter what scene it is because we don't have to restore it. It's always there. And strangely enough, for the most part, they were so busy that they didn't have time to do it. You know, between getting the dailies ready, I mean, it was there's a lot to do. And doing effects for me, and uh, I think that my weakest skill was music editing it would take me 10 times as long to edit the music for a sequence as it would to edit the film <laughs> i like yeah. it's just this and other people do it really easily and well that's another skill that i wish i had but i didn't
0: do you remember the the character of pooh in world according to Garp? was there a bigger arc for her than was what was in the film
1: no no that was pretty much really yep yeah. The interesting about that film, of course, uh, it's sort of like a precursor of everything that's happening today. It's about transgender rights. It's about women's rights. It's, I mean, it's just like, it's unbelievable that John Irving that many years ago could write a book that presaged everything that's happening now. And it was also, I think, Glenn Close's first movie. I knew she was a brilliant actor after Garp when she did Fatal Attraction. And... She was incredibly sexist, sexy, and I thought in Garp, she was sexless. Yeah. So I was stunned when I saw that performance.
0: <laughs> that's that's an actress for you right there. It really is. And it was Robin's
1: first movie, and it was unlike anything he's done after that you know, he did after that, for the most part. And he was just a kid. Conceptually, it was a wonderful piece. And George Roy Hill, you know, one of the best directors ever. He had everything he could direct actors. He knew, uh, you know, he knew camera. I mean, he was a a live TV director. So all that stuff came easy. We were kind of friendly, but then he never asked me to do another film after that. So I thought to myself, "Eh, he probably didn't like me. But then I knew sort of like, I think we visited after that. So I couldn't explain it except that the film didn't do well. And maybe at that point, I wasn't as skilled as I thought I was. Film was great. So I don't know what the reason was, but whatever.
0: Yeah, you never know why those things happen.
1: You know, those things you have to overcome in a career because there are plenty of times that you're going to have someone that you think is going to hire you that doesn't.
0: What are the relationships like between you and your directors? How do you, you know, what what is the politics? What do you think an editor needs to know about um, nursing that relationship with a director?
1: Well, the most important thing is that when the director shows up every day or every other day or whenever he does show up, that they're happy to see you. So that means that they like you, you know, and so you're there to serve them, you know, and to be their best friend and hopefully, you know, help bring the film to whatever vision they they uh, want to achieve. You have to be a little bit critical if there's something you don't like. You have to speak to your mind, but only once. You know, once is enough. They don't, you know, you can't keep harping on the same thing because they'll start to resent it. Not unlike a cameraman. So when the director gets to the set, they like to see this guy. So they like to see you when they come into the... So I guess that means that you have to be likable. You can't be like, you know, you can't have a, a difficult personality that make, that's challenging people. And of course, I mean, there are many editors that work on different levels. Uh, their skill precedes them, and they can be a little tough on some directors. But I always found like you have to be as nice as you could to everybody. Like, mo- most directors, when you're on a movieola, they would only come in... They wouldn't sit there all day. It was, like, a, too boring for them. Oh, yeah. It was, like, it would take so long, and, you know, they wouldn't be able to see more than one or two shots. So they would wait until things were assembled. With the, with the Abbott, it's different. They like to be there. They can, you know, just try this, just try that, punch of a button. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to be... They don't have to wait. They can, you know, their lack of patience can show up because you can do something instantaneously. And also the studio can weigh in better, which is not such a great thing when you're on the avid. You know, those coming in and say, what is it, you know, what does it matter? Just try it and see what happens. So that's been, a you know, and if the director is strong enough as a director, you know, if his reputation is strong enough, he can hold them back. But if it's a new director, they have a problem.
0: Do you find that you need patience as an editor to get through the process?
1: The thing about an editor is that you, can't, you can never give up. You know, you just work as hard as you can, and the day will pass like lightning. So I don't know that patience is the right word, but sometimes I would come in at 8 in the morning and be 10 at night, and I wouldn't even realize that time had passed, except that someone handed me a sandwich at
0: the... <laughs> hopefully two sandwiches uh, in that amount of time. My, my my point with the patience thing is not so much, It's it's basically what you said about not giving up. It's when I was a younger editor, I always felt like the first edit should be perfect and then it shouldn't change. And now I realize that the process takes months and months and things change and they evolve and you have to, have the patience to have have the scene evolve.
1: It's true. Well, I'll tell you a funny story about that. When I first started working with Dee Dee, it was on Alice's Restaurant. Before we showed Arthur Penn the movie, we would run it for ourselves. So we ran it for ourselves, and I had never been on a feature film before, and I thought to myself, wow, this is perfect. Arthur came in, and right from the beginning, he starts to tear things apart, and and I think to myself, how can he do that? It's beautiful. And then about 10 months later, I realized that he was right. This is the process. So that, from that initial instinct about this movie is perfect to what it actually ended up with taught me a very good lesson. The only time that you really have to have patience is so that there's a scene that you particularly hate and the director keeps wanting to revisit it. Just when you think, uh, oh, thank heaven, it's finished. And then he'll say, you know, can we look at... And that's when you need patience. It's like those things that you know are going to be the death of you and they keep coming back and back and back until, he, until you think you're going to scream. So one of those occurred really early on in Alice's restaurant were all the Pete Seeger scenes. And I'm not a big fan of that kind of music to begin with. So, <laughs> uh, was the editor, and, we kept, and I was the assistant, and we kept having to dredge the scene back again, and we were miserable. And to this day, I remember the song. <laughs> and, uh, at his funeral, I actually brought that up. Jerry and I had one thing in common, we hated Pete Seeger. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, and so there are always scenes like that, that you, you hold your breath thinking, oh, please don't let him come back and ask something about that scene. And sure enough, that's what they do.
0: Do you remember learning something from Dee Dee about, I mean, how did she do, you, I mean, I, this was more well more, more than 50 years ago um, on Alice's Restaurant having her scenes ripped apart.
1: She, you know, it was a good lesson because she was, had no problem with that. You know, she, uh, all her directors were like her hero and as well as she was their hero in many instances. So, yeah, no, she expected it. And it was a matter of fact, Uh, sometimes she would think that they had done something wrong, that they shouldn't have done this, but very, very little. I mean, it was part of the process. She recognized it as part of the process. You know, she used to talk through everything while she was working, and I'd be handing her pieces of film. She'd talk about every cut. Oh, I should do this, and maybe I should do a close-up. No matter how long I stayed with her and watched her and sort of learned from her, when you start doing yourself, it yourself, it's a whole different ballgame. No matter what, you're terrible when you start, or at least I was. As long as you somehow believe that you're going to get through that particular stage, which I didn't at the time... Uh, you're okay, but boy, it was a rude awakening.
0: It's interesting, though, when you think about you, that you mentioned your assistant editors and trying to train them, or the 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 how difficult it is for them now. It's very different on the Avid because you would never ask uh, an assistant for a shot necessarily. It's just there for you, so they don't get to hear, "Hey, I'm looking for this close up because I feel like," and then you walk through why you want the piece of film you're looking for.
1: But what I did do is I would show all my assistants each scene and see if they had whatever their comments would be. And sometimes I would ignore them. And most times I would, like, maybe uh, implement some of them. So the interesting thing about The Avid, where on film you'd have to take copious notes because it was too hard to go through each roll of film to find what you wanted. In the Avid, you're looking for something, and you can look at each scene for that section in no time. Nancy Myers once said to me that she admired the way I used behavior in my editing because I would look for moments of behavior in the dailies that I could incorporate, not only with their reactions or dialogue, but of like weird little behavior that you could stick in and it would make sense and it would help. On film, editors used to make select roles, and on the avid, some of them still do. I always felt making a select role limited your options, that if you didn't go through everything each time, then you might miss a moment that in notes looked like it didn't work, but perhaps in context, it would be brilliant.
0: Yeah. No, there are, there are editors that like them and there's editors that don't. I interviewed uh, Joel Cox, who's uh, Clint Eastwood's editor, and he goes... Yeah,
1: I've never met him, but... Yeah. select reels
0: are for sissies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the films that you didn't mention, but that I remember, you know, I watched dozens of times because I I had a, uh, a young preteen girl at one time, was Parent Trap. Was that tricky to edit those scenes, the twin scenes? You know, it's one person playing two girls. Is that hard to edit? Actually,
1: it was a lot easier than you think because what they would do would be they'd shoot the scene with her, then they block off that half of the camera, they shoot the other scene, but they'd play the audio and they talk back and forth. And then my assistant would, Jimmy... <laughs>
0: Jimmy... Jimmy Durante.
1: Right. He would then, you know, just sort of put them together. And it was really well-planned. The thing about that movie is that Lindsay Lohan was an absolute genius at that time. I mean, I had never, like, made my jaw drop. She was an amazingly accomplished actress at that young age. And, of course, Nancy, being the perfectionist that she is, it was a little bit tricky uh, putting some of the things together, but mostly it just went together because uh, Dean Cundey, I think, was the cinematographer, and he had had plenty of experience with special effects and so was able to, uh, you know, make it simpler.
0: Do you watch the original movie before you cut
1: that? I thought this one was actually better than the original. I thought the original, well, first of all, so many years before the, the original that it was rather unsophisticated. None of the techniques were the same. And ours was much smoother, but of course, the original with Haley Mills is the one that's considered like the one. Although every kid now who, who has watched Parent Trap, that's the one they remember.
0: That's great. Uh, anything else? I've kept you for a long time, Mr. Rotter. I really appreciate all the time you've spent with me. Is there anything you can think of that you that you can think of that we need to pass on to, uh, to editors that might be listening to this and uh, looking for a little wisdom?
1: Yeah, I guess the only thing that uh, I can pass on is that you can always figure out a solution if you spend enough time working on it and just never give up. I mean, that was the thing about Dee is that she never gave up on anything and passed that on to all those who ever worked for her.
0: Did you ever do shorts? I mean, a lot of people do shorts kind of in between their feature films just to stay working, to be able to have
1: practice yeah i never had to do that although i had plenty of unemployment periods never had to do shorts i remember once cutting a documentary on at home in my spare bedroom uh, in 16 millimeter and waking up at all hours of the night running in to check the cut or do something it was a nightmare so i never never would work from home again but some people have little studios in their home and now a lot of editors are working from home the networks or whoever, you know, pulls in the equipment and gets them the right, right things. And, uh, you know, that's what they do.
0: Yeah, lots of people are working from home. And w- I am interested in your documentary background. Do you find that there's a lot of overlap in skill set? Or is there something that you learned from documentary that you carried into features?
1: Well, you know, the, the thing about documentaries are editorially, you're finding the story, which is totally different from uh, narrative material. When the story is there and you're implementing it, so in many ways, documentary skills are not about actually putting film together, but about creating what that film is about. I mean, you're one of the you know you have a director, but you're also one of the architects of that movie. So, in some instances, your contribution is more important to the film than the editor is to narrative material. You know, I do notice that documentaries are, particularly now with COVID has hit, are becoming a lot more popular and a lot more money is being spent on them as opposed to like 10 years ago when the form was, you know, aside from Ken Burns, the form was almost dead.
0: Did, have you ever worked on a film that needed massive restructuring? I've talked to some editors that have.
1: No. The reason for massive restructuring is that the script just isn't working.
0: Just curious, because you've said in a couple of my questions, oh, no, it was written like that, you know, a great script, and uh, that was the way it was scripted.
1: Yeah, for the most part, I guess I was lucky that, that, I mean, I have worked on some turkeys. I think I can almost always spot it when I see a movie that's had massive restructuring, or almost spot when they wrote a different ending or a different beginning or... Whatever, but uh, usually massive restructuring means that film is in dire trouble. I mean, I'm sure that there have been a few times that I've, you know, juxtaposed a couple of scenes, but I wouldn't call it massive restructuring. Some of my lesser films are pretty interesting, too. Like Heaven Can Help. I don't know whether you ever saw that. It was originally titled Catholic. Did not. Very funny. A Little Bit of Heaven, which came out a couple of years ago, which was excoriated uh, in England the reviews, but uh, and the company went bankrupt as they were trying to release it. But I thought it was a pretty good movie. And there are a lot of dogs that I, you know, that I would rather not have worked on. But the one movie that I did that was is notorious is Ishtar. Oh, yeah. Which now is sort of making a comeback. And it was definitely an interesting time working with that cast of characters. And um, has some moments in it that I thought were extremely funny. But, uh, you know, my usually it's mentioned in derogatory t- terms, so it wasn't a happy day in a
0: Do you think that was because of the financial issues? or what? Well,
1: part of it was that
0: I think that our producer
1: and the head of Columbia at that time, who had just taken over, David Putnam and Warren Beatty, didn't like each other, or at least... David Putnam didn't like Warren I don't know about never heard Warren mention it but uh, so I think that that uh, it was not high on their list of releases and of course the money made a difference and of course you know uh, once someone gets wind of a story that's going not the way you want it it seems to catch like wildfire but if you watch the movie there are things in it that are just totally unique and his never been done before. And so uh, Elaine, who, you know, is a absolutely brilliant character, I think suffered professionally from the uh, arrows of scorn that were, you know, pointed her way. But really is like one of the great artists of our times, not only for her movie making, but also for her writing. So unfairly treated. Somehow I managed to survive as all the other people did. And so it just, goes to prove that when you get hammered, stick your head up again, maybe they'll miss the next time.
0: (laughs) Uh, Great advice to end on. Uh, And from one Steve to another, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Bye.
0: That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out provideocoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Steve Rotter, and to Dylan Giovanetto who edited this week's episode. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Hallfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.